Hi everybody, my name is Catherine. Um, I am a host of a podcast called Friendly Anarchism where we talk about theology and anarchism because I am a Quaker. And um, so I'm really excited that I got invited here today. Uh, it's called Friendly Anarchism because the full name for Quakers is the Religious Society of Friends. So yeah. And uh, I gained a lot of insight through that work as well as through personal study experience. So um, as a Quaker mystic and anarchist, I'm challenged by my very existence to examine the cross-pollinations and intersections between theology and anarchism. Um, I often have a hard time with self-care and community care, and I think that's pretty endemic to our movement, is having a, diff having a difficult time approaching these subjects, and it's something that I see um, a lot of conversation about, and I encourage everybody to search out for the, search those conversations and those people out that are having these discussions. I'm just going to be just showing um, one side of it that I feel like hasn't been discussed as much, which is the spiritual angle. So um, a spiritual framework has been somewhat neglected, so I wanted to sort of bring that into the conversation. So I'm going to be talking primarily about Christian mysticism because that is my own experience. There are other mystic traditions that are definitely worth looking into as well. Um, um, the first one that comes into mind is Taoism. Taoism is very mystic, so if that's something that interests you, this is a subject that interests you, I encourage you to look into those other mystic traditions as well. But I'll be speaking um, from my own experience, which I think is a good way to go about a lot of these conversations. Um, yeah, so why heartbreak? Um, because heartbreak is an existential crisis. Heartbreak goes beyond just sort of a single moment or a single, um, a single act. Heartbreak is something that throws everything into doubt, yourself, your relationship with the world, your relationship with others, and um, even concepts, larger concepts like justice, um, get thrown into the wind when you are heartbroken. It's in its nature existential. Um, and when I feel like as anarchists, we are sort of walking existential crises because we work really hard to put everything on the line, including our freedom and our lives for a world that we sort of think a lot of the time is sort of irrevocably broken. So that is by itself a conflict of interest that can really tear us up. Um, sort of, I'm especially a sort of a black on black anarchist with a real nihilist streak, and I think that that runs through, there is this nihilism that runs through the anarchist movement that I think um, can be seen in a positive light as well, so I'm going to talk about that. So we're heartbroken too because we just work really, really hard. We push ourselves very hard, and uh, we're doing a lot of hard emotional work in order to save the world, and that sets the stage for having heartbrokenness and for having um, a depth of existential crisis that can really bring us down. So um, one of the things about heartbreak is it comes from a place of love. I think in the end that what we do comes from a deep place of love. All of this work is because we love the world or we love our communities or we love, we're passionate about the idea of anarchism. And so when you reframe the conversation to say like, we're here because we have a lot of love to give. It shows that that's why we feel this heartbreak as well when that love is not returned or when that love feels um, like we're letting ourselves down when we work too hard and, or when we let each other down as a movement, we're still really struggling with radical solidarity. And a lot of that comes from having a lot of love and having it there's something more heartbreaking about it when it's someone that you love rather than someone that you don't care about. So, so I think there is something missing from our conversation, which is the idea of spiritual health. Uh, I think existential questions are more spiritual in nature um, because heartbreak is larger than that. So, so I want to talk about the elephant in the room a little bit, which is Christian anarchism. That's not totally... Uh, in our movement as much, so I'm trying to carve out space for that and for myself as well and for the movement. Uh, there is a rising movement of um, faith-based organizing in anarchist Christianity. So I have a quote here from a book called 
radical Christian writings, a reader. Throughout Christian history, and particularly at times of crisis and social upheaval, there have emerged writings which, reflecting the values of the capital K kingdom, have engaged in searching critiques of the political order and promoted social change and economic and change in economic relations, most commonly by advocating or enacting equality of wealth, power, gender, or status. I think as anarchists, our resistance to Christianity and Christian anarchism um, can be a real problem. Uh, we need to reject sort of an elitist notion that Christianity itself is useless and that everyone who adheres to it are unenlightened because Christianity has been and remains a comfort and source of revolutionary power to a lot of people, myself included. Examples, of course, include people like Sojourner Truth, Ernesto Cardinal, Dorothy Day, and many others, especially people who are not famous. Um, if we truly believe in the strength of diversity, we need to be making space in the movement for spiritual and theological discussions. Um, and also, not always, but there can sometimes be a little bit of a racist or ableist undertone to the unexamined rejection of Christianity, as Christian traditions are especially important often to communities of color and to um, the disabled. So, anarchism itself is a kind of faith as well. To quote David Graeber, so what I did is I just, um, I put all of these quotes up on the slide so you can read them as I, as I read them out loud. Sometimes I feel like that helps with quotes. So to quote David Graeber on anarchism, we are talking less about a body of theory than about an attitude, or perhaps one might even say a faith. The rejection of certain types of social relations, the confidence that certain others would be much better ones on which to build a little full society, and the belief that such a society could actually exist. So the question though is, how does a personal spiritual practice help with the larger revolutionary movement? Here's one of my favorite quotes ever from a writer, a Quaker writer named Howard Britton. This was written in 1942. For friends, the most important consideration is not the right action in itself, but a right inward state out of which right action will arise. Given the right inward state, right action is inevitable. Inward state and outward action are component parts of a single whole. So everything we do is affected by how we're feeling. Another Quaker maxim is you cannot bring peace to the world without bringing peace to yourself. And spiritual health is not secondary to our struggle, but is in fact the struggle itself because when we are at peace, it shows in all of our actions, in the work that we do, and in the strength and durability of our connections with others. Conversely, when we are not at peace, the same thing happens. It ripples outwards. We don't do spiritual work just for ourselves, but also for the people around us and for our communities. Spiritual health has largely been a conversation about individual work, but there are important conversations about communal spiritual health as well and the strength in that. Um, there is reasons, uh, sociological and personal and societal reasons that organized religion exists. But as we know as anarchists, organized doesn't have to mean hierarchical. There can be um, organized ways of bringing community together in this way, um, despite the prevailing paradigm of hierarchical religion. So what is the connection specifically between the mystic tradition and anarchism? Uh, both anarchists and mystics believe everyone has or should have equal access to power. Anarchists are speaking primarily of political power, while mystics are speaking primarily of spiritual power. Um, but in the same, it's the same core belief out of which arises similar dedication to the equalization of the power by uplifting the oppressed. This is the definition of social justice, and something's never changed. Mystics have faced the same state and systemic oppression that anarchists face today, so have throughout history tried many different ways of coping, evading, and confronting that reality. I believe that white anarchism is in many ways a continuation of Christian mystic traditions. It takes more than a couple of generations to shed the societal accoutrement associated with the way of life, and that's fine because there's a lot of really good stuff there that we can be looking for, looking towards for enlightenment on these subjects. Um, so there's a lot that got thrown out with the rejection of the institutions of the church in the mo at, during the modern anarchist theory in the 1800s. While Christianity has been a source of genocide, colonialism, and patriarchy, there has also always been a fun, lesser known, or rebellious side, which wasn't the dominant strain. 
Um, Mark Van Steenwick from the Center for Prophetic Imagination wrote a text called That Holy Anarchist Reflections on Christianity and Anarchism, in which he says, um, We would be wise to ground our anarchism in real mysticism, one that embraces a sort of divine wildness that can empower us to love in an unloving world, one that gives us a glimpse of a reality that we can't yet see. That mysticism can be linked to, an linked to anarchism makes sense. Mystics often reject the notion that access to God is meaning. <laughs> so unlike other strains of radicalism, such as communism, anarchists tend to work in the shadows, both, both literally and figuratively. A lot of what we do never sees the light of day. Even large, above-ground projects have a tendency to be often ignored by society as a whole. We often are actively hiding our work from the population at large to avoid the gaze of the state. And a lot of our work isn't even necessarily materially tangible, but in changing processes, redefining ethics, and changing the way we think about the world. I found an interesting parallel in David Graeber's Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, where he was speaking about indigenous mystic societies that went through large-scale social change toward egalitarianism. A lot of the ideological work, in fact, of making a revolution was conducted precisely in the spectral night world of sorcerers and witches and redefinitions of the moral implications of different forms of magical power. But this only underlines how these spectral zones are always the fulcrum of the moral imagination, a kind of creative reservoir to a potential revolutionary change. It is precisely from these invisible spaces, invisible most of all to power, once the potential for insurrection and the extraordinary social creativity that seems to emerge out of nowhere in revolutionary moments actually comes. I believe that these invisible spaces are akin to anarchist spaces and sort of small communal and um, uh, affinity group type projects that we do as anarchists. So, and it also goes back to the spiritual mystic belief in the importance of inward state and the creation of outward state, but we're changing from an, an, an um, individual scale to a societal scale of an inward state of these small projects to the outward state of society during the revolutionary moment. So, I want to talk about some strategies that have arisen from past Christian movements. And many, if not all of these, are also connected to some very problematic and oppressive histories, but I'm bringing them forward to consider where they stem from and if there is revolutionary potential there, maybe we can adapt or revamp some of these strategies in our own work moving forward. So, the first one that I have here is the most well-known and seems the most simple, but it's often actually the very hardest. It, which is just having faith. And that is having faith in our vision, having faith in each other, and also living in the mindset what, with um, the Franciscan monk who's a mystic named, uh, named Richard Rohr, he calls a trustful surrender, or falling upwards, where the more that you give up, the more that you gain, and it's about accepting uncertainty and sort of so that's living in that faithful space. And the more that you sort of give up a false notion that you have control, then that giving up control and sort of having faith in the world can bring a lot of power. Um, but this makes us very vulnerable. Um, doing that, having that faith, being that openness is a very vulnerable space to bring in, but this brings us back to solidarity and the problems we have with solidarity when we don't show that vulnerability and we're not willing to go there at all um, because truly strong and durable connections with each other are created through radical vulnerability with each other. Um, there's been a lot of sort of work on this, including by a sociologist, Brene Brown, and we talk also about the book Joyful Militancy, which is a great book who talks, that talks a lot about the need for this radical vulnerability, which is another word for having faith that something good can come of your actions or come from the space that you're in. So um, one of the quotes from Joyful Militancy is, a crucial component of Joyful Militancy is a collective capacity to build, maintain, and repair trust. Trust is just another word for faith. Another quote from that book, it's a great book, is um, probably one of the best ways to break down the walls of the system is to break down the walls around each other first. And I think the only way we can break down those walls is with trust. A leap into the dark like that is the definition of faith. So the next one that is also very familiar to us is keeping Sabbath or going to church. 
we need to be slowing down in order to be able to speed up. Um, going to church is about taking dedicated time for individual and communal spiritual health and its revolutionary work. It was seen as so important to the functioning of society that it was given an entire day out of the week. And I have to wonder, are we, is, every, is one out of every seven things that we're doing <coughs> simply about our spiritual and emotional health? Like maybe it should be. And maybe we need to be thinking about taking that time for both individual and communal communal health on that, taking it that seriously and taking putting that much time into it where it's an entire day of the week is spent only on keeping, uh, making our movements more sustainable through this sort of group spiritual practice where we come together. Um, here's a quote from Cindy Milstein. It was in a really awesome essay called Solidarity as Weapon in Practice versus Killer Cops and White Supremacy. And this quote's actually from an older version that's not on our website. It's a great quote. I'm not sure why she took it down, which is too bad. But maybe, yes, maybe we need to stop to better self-organize so that we can do deeper, sustained jail and court support as follows to arrests, so that we can strategize on how to really shut down the system in myriad ways and practice at the same time new ways of being living, a new society that makes this old one truly look as brutal as it is and ultimately makes it history. Most important, though, we need to stop to better enact revolutionary solidarity as a verb, our best weapon, a living practice as we struggle toward better having each other's back when backs all look quite different from each other, as they should. So Sabbath was not just about um, spiritual practice, it's also about building and sustaining community. Whatever disagreements there are between people, everyone comes together to refocus on something bigger than themselves and to solidify the values held by everyone in that group. This everyone takes a breath. So the next one is um, monasticism and separated communities. As a movement, I think we are good at creating communities and understanding their strengths in um, taking care of basic necessities, holding goods in common, prefigurative living, and workshopping new ways of moving through the world. Monasteries and intentional communities are an example of this. Here's a quote from Rosa Luxemburg, which was interesting to have found. She wrote an essay called Socialism in the Churches in 1905. Um, in the monasteries, they still live as in the early church. And who dies of hunger there? Who has not found enough to eat there? Yet the men of our times fear living that way more than they fear falling into the sea. Why have we not tried it? We would fear it less. What a good act that would be. If a few of the faithful, hardly 8,000 dared in the face of the whole world where they have nothing but enemies to make a courageous attempt to live in common without any outside help, how much more can we do it today now that there are Christians throughout the whole world? Would there remain one single Gentile? Not one, I believe. We would attract them all to us and win. So if you sort of change out Christianity towards anarchism, if we're talking about trying to make a movement that is larger and brings in more people, and this is something we can look at, is how did these monastic societies bring people in and how did they keep those communities going in this way? Um, some of my favorite examples of this are the Beguines and the Beghards. And unfortunately, I don't have, I didn't have enough time to really do the sort of in-depth research that I wanted to do on them, but I'll just introduce them a little bit so that I think that this is one example of many of these different communities that we could look to and do more research into to see how they did things, to see how we could take some of those practices into ourselves. So the Beguines were a movement starting in the 14th century in Europe, and they were Christian women who felt led to leave a life of service and contemplation. Some of them lived together in Beguinages, but they didn't take vows like monks, and association with the communities was totally voluntary. They lived societally in a space difficult for many to understand because it was neither, neither totally religious, it was also not lay. It was sort, it was functioned spiritually, uh, but not, but outside of the institutions of the church. So they had worked non-hierarchically and they had no leaders, um, which is really interesting. And um, they also sometimes lived in separated communities, but also sometimes lived within other communities and with larger places and within cities. So um, they became a really, really popular movement that went really, really well for them. And so their successes, I think there's some lessons there in how they were able to 
be spiritual but not be isolated and be spiritual while still being um, in a world that was in some ways sometimes hostile to that. There were a lot of other societal experimentation going on, especially during the Reformation with little communities trying to pop up their own little utopias. And I think we could be doing more research into those, and I hope to do more research into what drove um, these radical Christian populations into these communities, what worked about them, what didn't work about them, and why. So the next one, if you're gonna bring up monasticism, you have to talk about celibacy, um, <laughs> because that was a thing that happened. Um, now, I'm, stay with me, I'm not saying that everybody should be celibate, but I think we, do ha we could have some communication, we should, could have some conversations about intentional relationships to sex and, relation and how we relate to each other on a romantic level. Um, there are people in the movement and in the world that are not comfortable with sex, that are they're asexual or aromantic or even just have for whatever reason and um, there needs to be space for that in the movement and seen even possibly, possibly as an upside because you get a lot done when you're not worried about relationships. So you can be, we could have very successful, relate, we could have very successful movements if, uh, in, if they're with the help of people who decide actively to put aside, put all of their energy and time into revolutionary struggles instead of sort of earthly ones with each other. There are some great projects that separate by gender and non-gender as well, and I think that's something interesting to look at. For instance, the Beguines, there was, they were um, all women, and then there was the male counterpart, counterpart called the Beghards. And the interesting thing about celibacy, too, is it sort of um, upended the patriarchal structure. In some ways, it upheld it when it was talking about sort of like the dirtiness of sex or that kind of shaming. But there was also an underbelt, there was also like a revolutionary undertone to it where men were saying, I'm not gonna be defined by my virility or my ability to dominate women. And women were saying that I'm not gonna give up my bodily autonomy to a man. So there's something interesting to be looking into in that. Um, the next one is baptism. So Mr. Traditions actually don't usually have baptism rites, but other strands of radical faith movements do, and I think it's worth looking at. So being an anarchist, and anarchism is a way of life, and it can be a very different way of life than society as a whole, and it's good to, I think, um, understand that that's a reality that we live in. So conversion, this is from Radical Christian Writings again. Conversion involved a different style of life with values at odds with mainstream culture. It meant belonging to a group where elite values and goods were widely shared and were the hallmark of the community. Wisdom, religiosity, wealth, and power, which had been the preserve of the few, were now available to all through the divine spirit. Now I think this is something that could really use some development in our movement. Right now there are signifiers of those that have been really adopted into the movement, such as language, security culture, ways of dressing, ways of eating, but they're not explicit or widely understood, um, which can make the movement largely inaccessible to those who are interested in joining. So the process and the rites of baptism was a way to introduce and train newcomers. And there's always, there's a danger of becoming a way of excluding people from what was originally supposed to be a democratic access of bringing people in. However, I think we're already doing this without recognizing it as such. That we're already excluding people and we already have rites and um, rituals that people are not being given any chance to understand or know about. And I think that having some kind of way of training people into what is understood as a very different way of life is something that would be incredibly helpful to a lot of folks and would help us grow the movement if there was a clear pathway into becoming an anarchist. Um, Okay, the next one is silent contemplation, study and meditation. Ex existential crises take a lot of processing and unwinding of the mind. Staying centered and calm in the face of terrible things takes a lot of work and practice. Um, one of the ways of doing this is to get out of negative mind loops, not find, trying to shame yourself or numb yourself, but by filling your mind with other things. 
So for instance, as a Quaker, we listen is a really important part of our practice. We listen to each other, and we listen to silence itself, and we listen to the world. There's a lot to hear. Other ways of doing this are biblical phrases. People would meditate on an interesting biblical phrase, or if you're talking about Taoism again, or Buddhism, Zen cones, just little little interesting ditties that can you can think about forever, basically. Um, questions and queries, understanding that sometimes there aren't answers, and then just asking questions and thinking about questions is, a, is totally valid. And studying, you know, people would study theology and um, study the Bible, and maybe we could be studying spirituality or spending time really digging into what our relationship to the universe and is and what is that existential crisis that we're feeling and give it some time and some space. So this one is really interesting, this next one. When I was doing my research, I found it, um, which is embracing the apocalypse. Because if you're talking about keeping perspective and you're talking about a relationship to the universe, we're in a situation right now where we're gonna have to talk about the apocalypse <laughs> and the idea of like, the, and this is something that's run through radical theory basically forever anyway, is the idea of the revolution, which can be seen as a type of apocalyptic future, where everything changes and everything collapses or everything is different from the way that it was before. So how do mysticism and anarchism reframe the apocalypse as a source of inspiration instead of one of paralyzing dread? It's interesting because there are two strains of apocalyptic Christian theory akin to the debate between communism and anarchism. There emerges in Christian history a clear difference between those who pore over details of texts like Revelation in order to be able to map out the narrative of the end of the world and those who were inspired by the apocalyptic texts to see their own visions and offer a prophetic challenge to the communities of their day. The former group of interpreters tend to use revelation to point forward, the latter in finding its words an empowering conviction for the present moment of crisis, the kairos. The coming reign of God is not merely an article of faith for the future, but it's in some sense already present, either in the life of the prophetic group called to implement or proclaim, or as a phenomenon within the historical process which demands a response and interpretation, what is known as reading the sign of the times. I think there is an anarchist nihilism that can be healthy in this way. Um, I found this quote in an article called, We Fight Because We Like It, Maintaining Our Morale Against Seemingly Insurmountable Odds. It was published by Crime Think. So it's ironic because this uh, essay was, pretty, was very anti-Christian, but it really stuck a really it's a Christian tone with me it, because it was talking about this sort of apocalyptic future. It says, for me, accepting that my actions cannot derive their meaning from some future goal is entwined, intertwined with the process of coming to terms with my mortality. Recognizing death is inevitable, I don't hurry any faster towards it. We may be defeated by our enemies. We are certainly doomed to become dust ourselves. In this regard, my ability to believe in the possibility of change, not as something to occur in the future, but as something I can pursue right now, is a fundamental part of my power to live fully, to maintain a healthy relationship with my own agency. This is different from believing in a millenarian vision of revolution. It is not a prediction about the future, such as the scientists might make, but rather a decision about how to relate to myself and my own capabilities. They mention in there remaining in the present, which is something that's in a lot of our literature, especially about <laughs> mindfulness, and I think it is really important. It's been something that's been reiterated over and over and over again throughout history, and it's, been, it's in mystic texts as well. So um, from Lao Tzu, the Taoist, it says, if you are depressed, you are living in the past. If you are anxious, you are living in the future. If you are at peace, you are living in the present. And this is um, Matthew 6.34. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So there was another really great quote out of that essay. I really like that essay, which is, it's probably the most anti-Christian essay I've read. <laughs> um, from our lived experiences of anarchy and freedom, we can extrapolate a vision of the future that is not a reiteration of Christian eschatology. Agreed. Um, but rather a dimension of how we conduct ourselves in the present. We may or may not live to experience anarchy on a scale greater than our hard-won friendships, love affairs, projects, and uprisings, 
But in the meantime, the vision of that possibility can anchor or orient us in the present, informing our actions the way a mariner navigates across the sea by the stars. Regardless of what happens tomorrow, when we are able to imagine a utopia, that utopia can gain traction on reality by enabling us to take actions we would otherwise not be capable of. The reality, the content of a future utopia is determined by the actions we take today. Something really stressed by Christians is the idea of gratitude, of being living in thankfulness, and that is something that has been shown to be a great way of living and a great way of maintaining morale is just to live in a place of gratitude and then giving thanks. So prayer is a way of taking time every day to give thanks for everything you have and it keeps you in that space of, and it keeps you in a mindful space of gratitude, which is very healthy to do. Um, and it's about, there's a, there's a heavy emphasis on love as well in um, Christianity. And it sort of ties back to, we're talking about heartbreak, is that love can, we can have that love move us forward in a positive direction instead of having it break us. Because instead of having all of these expectations about the world, it's like living in gratitude for the things that we have and loving each other in our brokenness and loving the world and its brokenness and loving ourselves and our imperfection, which brings us to forgiveness. So forgiveness is obviously another really big part of Christian faith, saying that you're forgiven. So for us to live in forgiveness and gratitude is to forgive the world and to forgive each other when we mess up and to forgive ourselves for not being perfect. So if we stay in this mindset of living in love living in gratitude, and living in forgiveness, maybe we can find some peace. And from that peace, our inward self will project outwards into all of our actions and create stronger communities and create a stronger movement as a whole.
So it's interesting because I was an anarchist first. I'm a, should I use this? Um, I'm not going to use it. Okay. I, I was an anarchist first. I was an anarchist as a teenager, and then I kind of got lost in liberalism for a minute. I think a lot of people did. And then I came back around to it sort of in Trump era. And so I was refinding anarchism at the same time as I was feeling kind of empty. And um, I went to the Democratic National Convention to protest Hillary Clinton um, being elected, or whatever it's called, as the Democratic candidate. And when I was there, the People's Convention and the Socialist Convergence were both held in Quaker meeting houses. So I was going to those spaces, and they felt really beautiful. I was, I ra was raised atheist. I was just raised without anything. And so um, in these spaces, they felt so calm and like I was such a wreck at that moment in life I just like was such a hard time I think for everybody in a lot of ways and um, I found a lot of peace there and so I started looking into it and so that was in the summer of 2016 so I'm, I'm still sh just shy of two years of being a Quaker and it's been um, hard there hasn't been space for it really in the anarchist movement. That's been really hard on me. And there's also, you know, just on a personal level with my family, tries to be supportive, but they're atheists and it's still like kind of weird. You know, so I find myself in this weird space where it's like, I can't really, and then like Quakers are often like older and more liberal, so they're not as radical a lot of times. And so it's like, it's been this like, awkward space that I've been living in of like not really being accepted into anarchist circles, like not really being accepted into spiritual circles, but there is kind of a growing radical Christian movement that is really exciting to be a part of where there's other people that are finding this space being like, no, Jesus's message is incredibly radical and incredibly revolutionary. And like that space is being carved out um, but it's still in the works, and it's still fairly new as far as a movement right now. Anybody?
sure. I think that's really interesting. I think that sort of gets to a tension that exists between communism and anarchism. That there's sort of always been there because the materialist approach is more accepted, I think, still right now as a communist, more communist type of approach to the world. And I think that's because anarchism itself has ties, is more tied to sort of mystic traditions. And so I think the revival of that mystic tradition and centering of anarchist thought and theory is an important move away from a materialist view that can be kind of cold and sort of post-enlightenment, I think. I think um, one of the, a great book to read is David Graeber's Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, where he talks about the falseness of the enlightenment and the idea of revolution as being a clean break instead of um, that there can be a real colonized aspect to that because we're still saying like that something about white people, colonizers changed everything and there was no history before it or everything before that is primitive is primitive. And so like that's not exactly about materialism, but materialism just kind of came out of that sort of colonized um, post enlightenment framework. So um, I think that we should look at history as continuous and as more complicated than just a materialist view because I think there's something very human about spirituality that's always been there and can't be written off. Like I don't think I don't think humans do things just for material reasons. Yeah, I agree. I think that's part of why I see anarchism now as a, a continuation of this sort of radical Christianity, because I think the mystic Christianity is the best of us, but there is a lot to be seen from, for instance, the Puritans. We even still use the word purity culture when you're talking about the Puritans and the <coughs> idea that, like, holier-than-thou, you know, and um, self-righteous behavior so if we're, if we're not separating ourselves from these past traditions, we can look and see what's good and what's bad about how these past separated Christian communities and societies did things. And so uh, seeing, for yeah, so that's sort of like uber holier-than-thou religiosity that was endemic and we don't like about old Christianity. We are still performing those same, those same things now because we're the same religious type people just without the faith. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Anybody else? Do you, 
I don't know. I'm just interested in what people thought about this presentation, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think that comes back to the idea of clear expectations too. Like when you're talking about these societies that there was a there was an actual conversion moment where it's like or baptism rites or taking vows or something where it's like there's clear rules that are understood by everyone in the community. And we don't really have that, so we have all the rules, but no clear, it's not ever clear, you know what I mean? So like that causes a lot of, I've personally had some real problems where it's like things that I thought were obvious were not obvious to the other party, that I was like, well, this is obviously how you have to do this, it's totally rude to not do it like this. And then they had the same problem with me about something totally different. Like, well, obviously this is not okay for you to be doing things this way. And it's like, that is not obvious to me at all. So like, um, I, and we probably, I don't know if we'll be able to replicate that on like a larger scale for like the anarchist movement as a whole, but maybe just within our little communities or within our affinity groups, we can have some clear expectations for people to help keep that sort of like those missteps from happening. It's like, well, you know the rules now, so we can forgive you if you mess up, but like, it's understood that you should be doing these things, you know? Parable of the Sower? No. shitty to be a human basically the whole time. 
<laughs> it's been shitty to be a human basically the entire time. And so um, we're not the first people to go through that what seems like the end of the world. And uh, a lot of these faith communities are people that made it through those times, is through that faith community and through these small um, groups that held on to each other and held on to a vision and held on to living in service in the moment. And that's how they did it. So I think like there's something there to look at. How did they manage? How did these other groups manage to get through these hard times? You know.
so much there, I could just talk for hours on <laughs> what you're saying, but obviously I'm not going to do that. But yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that, because I do think that's, a, that's something that, that people need to pay attention to. Because I think for a lot of people, at least from my own experience, like, it is like trying to come sit at a crew kid's table. You know what I mean? In a lunchroom or whatnot. And I don't like that. And, uh, and yeah, I don't, maybe that sounds weird or funny, but that's, that's I, I connect it to the, to, to the religiosity thing, but also to, uh, to a lot of other I think it'd be interesting, I was thinking of like making a quiz that's like has all these questions. It's like what kind of anarchist are you? And then the answer is like, you're a Puritan, you're a Quaker, <laughs> you're a Beghard, you know, <laughs> you're a Beguine. So something like that. But yeah, no, you're right. Like it can it can really feel like the cool kids versus the not cool kids, and that's a really depressing way of living, and that's heart it's heartbreaking, is what it is, that sort of isolation. It isolates people and that breaks your heart. It breaks my heart. I've definitely had my heart broken by other anarchists. Thank you. 
Yeah, I would say the resistance to spiritual discussion or to any sort of religiousness in anarchism is pretty deeply colonized view of things because it sort of separates, it sort of says that spirituality is not real. And when you say spirituality and spirit are not real, you're throwing out tons of like indigenous spiritualities, you're throwing out tons, you know, things that are not just Christian. You know, you can't, it's sort of like, um, I, I get the feeling sometimes that like indigenous mystic traditions are seen as like, like, like okay, they can do that, but it's sort of not real. And like as a Christian mystic and as a white mystic, I'm saying like, I believe in mysticism. Like it's real, you know what I mean? So like when I feel thrown out, I feel like that's uh, that's an indication that, or, or not just from not Christianity, but when spirituality is thrown out, it's an indication that people are not actually believing in the reality of these spiritual traditions of other communities. Did you have something? When you were saying, when you were talking about um, the, like, kind of how everything is contributing to me, coming into the Chipur, I was also reminded of, like, the millenarians and the, like, a thousand years ago when, like, there was this kind of thought that the world would end, um, people kind of basically taking upon themselves to create community in, like, underground networks. Um, throughout the then Christian world, like uh, the Catholics and others. There's a, like a bunch of really great resources on that. Like Grell of Benign, or Benign, uh, who wrote The Revolution of Everyday Life, also wrote this one called uh, The Movement to the Free Spirit, um, which is about this group, I think it's called the Brotherhood the of the Free Spirit, and about like the traditions of, uh, of Christian, which I think at the time was synonymous with Catholic mysticism. Um, I grew up in a kind of Irish Catholic family, and so uh, a lot of, and like enforcing that, I think of like about that, how, um, how much when it's jammed down your throat, you have a gag reflex to it, uh, and how much that sucks. Um, but also uh, trying to acknowledge the kind of um, real effect that it has on people's lives and, and, uh, um, and like how liberating it can be um, is a challenge for me, but also like uh, I think it's important to do. Thank you. For more information about Friendly Anarchism, you can visit my website, www.friendlyanarchism.org, where there are articles, resources on Quakers, radical Christianity, anarchism, and anti-fascism, a link to the store, and more. A big shout out to my patrons, your support means a lot. If you aren't a patron and you'd like to help keep the show going, you can go to www.patreon.com slash friendlyanarchism, and for just $1 a month, get access to patron-only content like unedited versions of the show and outtakes. Friendly Anarchism is part of the Critical Mediations Podcast Network, along with other great leftist podcasts like The Magnificast, Season of the Bitch, Revolutionary Left Radio, and others. I'm also part of Theology Corner, which is a project that explores different facets of Christianity. For more on Radical Christianity, you can also check out the Friendly Fire Collective at www.friendlyfirecollective.wordpress.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a good review for me on iTunes. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening and see you next time.